Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the vertically integrated podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February the 5th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. My co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we are pleased to welcome Charles Ornstein who is senior reporter at ProPublica. He's been a reporter with, among others, the Dallas Morning News and the Los Angeles Times. Uh, with Tracy Weber, uh, Ornstein was a lead reporter on a series of articles in the Los Angeles Times titled The Troubles at King Drew Hospital that won the 2005 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Uh, his ProPublica uh, series, When Caregivers Harm, also with Weber, was a finalist for a 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. He's a past president of the Association of Healthcare Journalists and someone we like to read. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Frank. A good place to start would be to just find out a little bit more about what you do and how you do it. Um, I'm particularly uh, interested in uh, what it's like to be a journalist on this kind of progressive beat. Uh, and maybe tell us a little bit about uh, why you're so interested in healthcare, healthcare policy, and specifically health privacy. Sure. So I've had the amazing good fortune of working at ProPublica since 2008. And for your listeners who aren't um, familiar with ProPublica, we are a nonprofit investigative reporting journalism organization that does journalism in the public interest. So we are always looking at abuses of power, betrayals of public trust, and really to give voice to the people who are voiceless in um, discussions in society. And right now, you know, the mainstream media, it's no secret, is struggling. And um, ProPublica, fortunately, is able to continue to amplify accountability journalism and journalism that matters. I personally have been covering healthcare since 1997 at the Dallas Morning News, and I've covered it, as you noted, at the Dallas Morning News and the Los Angeles Times, and now here at ProPublica. And um, this past year, I decided to take a look at patient privacy, and so I've written a whole lot of articles on that front, and it's it's been really enlightening, and it's really challenged a lot of my own thinking about what's private and what are our, our own expectations about what's private. Clearly, stories about snooping on celebrity medical records, social media postings of patient pictures, um, data leakage through lawsuits. Um, these are not news for those of us inside the health privacy world, the bubble, if you like. And so I wonder what drives you to these issues. Um, is it the personal stories that underlie them? Do you think that insiders tend to view these of as of relatively minimal importance and so nothing really gets done? And that means that something like a, a, a series of stories can really help. So just tell us a little bit more about sort of why these sort of get you fired up. Well, I think this past year has seen, as you both know, uh, a real focus on large-scale um, breaches and hacking incidents uh, involving the major insurance companies and hospitals, which have seen millions of people's records at minimum exposed, um, and perhaps more than that. Uh, and a lot of questions have arisen from members of Congress and the public about um, about these issues. Uh, I was approached more than a year ago by a, a man in New York, uh, a man by the name of Ken Chenko. And Ken wanted me to... Um, 
um, look into a story involving his family. You see, Ken's dad, Mark, had been hit by a garbage truck and taken to New York Presbyterian um, Wild Cornell Medical Center here in New York. And while he was there, he died. Um, and unbeknownst to the family, while he was there, there was a television show called New York Med that was taping at the hospital. Uh, and again, unbeknownst to the family, Ken, uh, Mark's death was filmed by this crew. So fast forward a year, and Mark's stepmom, Anita, was in front of the TV watching New York Med, which she liked. Uh, and she notices a man come on screen, and his face is blurred and his voice is blurred. Um, but as she's watching, she can tell that's her husband. And in fact, he's asking, does my wife know I'm here? And the next thing you know, he codes and dies. And a doctor walks into a conference room to alert the family that he had died. And the doctor who had been miked tells the family, you know, we did everything we could. So Anita Chenko is watching this in her living room. Uh, and realizes that she had just watched her husband dying on the screen in front of her, and that no one had bothered to tell the family before or after or obtain their permission that he died. That is a pretty remarkable story, um, the Chenko family's interaction with New York Med. And it, it was a story I wrote up at the beginning of this year, and it really got me thinking just how how massive the effect of potentially very minor privacy violations are on real people. And and so that's what I devoted my year looking at. And I think there is a great appreciation for your coverage of that case. I actually mentioned it to a uh, Baltimore Bar Foundation meeting of uh, healthcare lawyers. Uh, we were talking about social media and healthcare, the media and healthcare. Um, it appeared that all of them had heard about it. All of them had uh, taken action, essentially, or had at least uh, alerted people to know that uh, this sort of thing is deeply troubling and should be definitely part of any uh, media PR strategy to anticipate exactly the type of problem that you brought up. So I think that story, among others, has been having a great deal of impact. Um, I wanted to move from that story uh, to the data journalism side of ProPublica. Um, I actually, in some of my classes, teach your uh, heart saver game, which I think is just an amazing uh, look at uh, hospital closures and other things that, uh, that ProPublica provided. Um, and the data journalism side of uh, your Protect and Patient Privacy series, I believe one part of it was the revelation by you and uh, C.C. Way that since 2009, there have been 1,419 large-scale data breaches that affect at least 500 people, but only 19 resulted in fines. Um, again, for our listeners, 19 out of uh, 1,400. And the accompanying story talked about how rare these fines are. Um, and I'm wondering if you have a sense of why these fines are so rare at the federal level. Um, it, it appears that the co your coverage pointed to the fact that there are the office seems a bit overwhelmed. It has a low budget and only about 200 employees. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, as a policy measure, I'm wondering if just as in health fraud and abuse, we only really got action when we started to allow the contractors who found fraud to get a bounty on the fraud findings or to take a percentage of the take. Uh, I'm wondering if, you know, the only way we're really going to get on top of this health uh, privacy data breach crisis is by uh, funding 
the offices that detect it with a percentage of fines, because otherwise I just don't know how we're going to address the problem that you have uh, described so well. Well, Frank, I mean, I think that the word HIPAA scares people left and right, and yet the agency, the office that is charged with overseeing it, the Office for Civil Rights, is tiny. This is an office with about 200 employees around the country, and they are charged with investigating tens of thousands of complaints every year, not just those involving patient privacy, but those actually involving civil rights violations within uh, the health sector. So um, in some ways, this is a massively uphill battle and one where you are dealing with, you know, sort of one one troop unit uh, where it's, it's the battle is sort of escalating and the the elements that are assigned to to fight it are not. Um, but more than that, I think that the philosophy of the Office for Civil Rights is to work with health entities to correct a problem so it doesn't happen again. And looking at um, the number of people potentially impacted. And so when you look at the fines that they impose, typically these are fines where um, the number of people affected is is larger. And more than that, it's that when they've done a security assessment, they've determined that the organizations didn't have particularly strong policies and procedures. Um, but I think what we found as we've done sort of our reporting is that in the situations where there was more than just the potential for harm, but where actual harm actually took place, um, the resolutions and the types of um, you know, res- the types of corrective actions that are taking place really bring no level of comfort to the people who were affected. I also wanted to call our listeners' attention to the story you did on the differing enforcement approaches of some of the state uh, inspectors in California. Uh, because I think a lot of what we're hearing now uh, in the health privacy world is exactly along what you've said, along the lines of what you said about the limitations on the federal level and the need to have a strong state attorney generals or other inspectors uh, coming in, um, as we saw, for example, in the Minnesota creative case, a really uh, creative application of state law there. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you could just describe for listeners the some of the pitfalls, perhaps, of, of the state or local authority as evidenced in the uh, California situation. Well, sure. So in California, they actually have more power than practically any other state. Um, this, if we sort of rewind a few years to the late 2000s, there was a spate of incidents in California in which celebrities' medical records were snooped in, um, most prominent among them Britney Spears and Farrah Fawcett. Um, and in Farrah Fawcett's case, her information was not just peeked at by employees at UCLA, but also leaked to the National Enquirer, which then wrote articles about her medical condition. Um, that led to the passage of a law that enabled the California Health Department to impose pretty significant fines against hospitals that violated patients' privacy. And indeed, um, the state has imposed fines against uh, hospitals for doing this. What we found, though, when we analyzed California's data was that it was very, very catch-as-catch-can, and that some of the state's uh, regional offices of the health department were aggressive in terms of uh, imposing fines, and others were not at all aggressive. And, you know, nobody had really looked at this disparity before we did. And so this disparity exists within California, but it also exists uh, among states. And as you note, 
Um, HIPAA allows state attorneys general to um, bring enforcement actions under HIPAA, but it is the rare state attorney general that has done that. For the most part, it's just not something that you find states getting uh, involved in, even though they can. You uh, mentioned that OCR tends to concentrate on the larger cases, or at least that seems to have been their their history, particularly uh, in 2015, which I guess will will go down as the year of medical cyber hacks. OCR gets its information from three sources. Uh, there are complaints, uh, there's an audit process, and then there's the self-reporting that is mandatory under the uh, breach notification provisions uh, of uh, the privacy security rules. Do you think that the press aside and state attorneys general aside, who don't have quite the same um, sticks that they can apply as OCR itself, and as you say, there's been some hesitancy, maybe Minnesota, I think, is is a good outlier there. Uh, Do you think that we need to revisit something that HIPAA has rejected and the courts have rejected, which is uh, to give a private right of action? Um, You talk about California, um, and that is a place where uh, private rights of action do apply under their state law. I say that because going back to sort of your opening few words where you talked about sort of these minor privacy ideas, these these small violations that we tend not to, to really drill down into. Um, and it's very easy for industry to say that, that privacy really isn't much of an interest that needs to be protected, that privacy violations are not as serious. You hear this kind of stuff a lot uh, in support of uh, new data liquidity initiatives and so on. And I wondered whether you had any sort of sense, uh, other than continuing your own good work, as to sort of structural improvements that we could make, uh, assuming, for example, that um, there isn't money in the budget to double the staff at OCR. Well, so, you know, in the, on the one hand, right now, private rights of action, while they're not allowed under HIPAA, uh, residents of different states have found different degrees of success using state laws to bring privacy rights of action. And what that points to is a very um, uneven playing field across the United States. I think you have to take a step back and remember that the only reason we know about some of the privacy breaches uh, involving individuals or a couple people that we do is because stum- somebody stumbled into it. And that we are seeing just the very, very tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, the actual level of breaches that are taking place. Um, this is because somebody went to court in a custody proceeding and referenced somebody else's medical records when the patient never allowed her ex-spouse to look at those. Or somebody went on Facebook and saw another person posting about their medical condition. So people are stumbling into this. But what that points to is that there's many, many more cases where um, people have been much more discreet when they've learned things and perhaps just whispered about it or held it to themselves. I had a number of chats with hospital officials, and the truth of the matter is that right now, they're not looking for these things. They have flags and break the glass in place for celebrities or for people who are committed because of um, mental health 
reasons, but they're not looking and performing regular audits on just run-of-the-mill patients like you or I. Um, and so they don't know how many people are inappropriately looking at those records. But I think going back to your question about what can be done, um, one thing that we thought was really important is that people should have an understanding of their health provider's records when it comes to patient privacy. That OCR can and perhaps should be putting online detailed information about complaints against health providers, the outcome of those complaints, self-reported breaches involving health providers. You know, I have put in public records requests in various states for information about um, breach reports involving uh, large university hospital systems and have been amazed by the dozens upon dozens of um different breaches that individual facilities have found and reported to OCR over the years. And you would never know this by going to OCR's website. And shouldn't we as patients have the ability to look this up and determine if we are comfortable with our health provider's privacy track record? And if OCR doesn't want to take a more enforcement-centered um, view of this, uh, they could at least put the data out there so people can make their own informed decisions. And I guess the, the sort of meta question is, whatever happened to the audit rule? Um, that we saw a draft of and then sort of fell off the cliff? That's a great question. My understanding is that the second round of the audits is beginning this year, um, but it is an extraordinarily slow process. I mean, as you note, Nick, this is taking years upon years to build upon the first round of audits and to analyze the results. Now they're going to just embark upon the second round, uh, and I think it's safe to say that it will take years. And remember, we're looking at a new presidential administration that's going to come into office in January of next year, whether it's Republican or Democrat, and um, that's going to new leadership of the Department of Health and Human Services and potentially the Office for Civil Rights. And with that new leadership could come a different uh, philosophy, one that is either, you know, more of the same, more restrictive or less restrictive, but it doesn't certainly provide any promise that the results of this round of audits is going to lead to any sort of actions anytime soon. Yes, I suppose the record should show that uh, although we're, we're grumbling here, uh, the record of OCR since uh, 2009 has been extraordinary compared to the enforcement or lack thereof uh, that happened before that. Frank talked a little bit about data earlier and then you bring up sort of the sort of lack of sort of audit information. I think one of the most remarkable things that you've been doing at ProPublica has been in uh, setting up accessible databases for uh, both uh, scholars to look at, but, but also, I'm sure more importantly from your perspective, individuals who can go online with this tool, the HIPAA helper uh, that you've, uh, you've put online. Um, can you talk a little bit about where the idea for that came from, the methodology behind it, and how on earth you're going to uh, collect and maintain uh, a valuable resource like this? Sure. So our, our thought and our thinking, not just with patient privacy, but with a number of other areas as well, is if the government isn't going to do it, somebody should. And why why shouldn't that somebody be us? Uh, certainly private industry does not have an interest in, in keeping this way of um, providing a, a tool for a, a check against themselves. And um, OCR hasn't shown any interest in doing that. So our view was, um, why don't we put in a Freedom of Information Act request to OCR for information on all of the complaints that it has closed and, and what the status of those complaints was and the outcome, um, the topic, the health provider that it was lodged against, 
We did the same thing with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs uh, in seeking information about privacy um, reports made to the VA. And we also put in a request under California law for complaints and deficiencies cited by the California Department of Public Health. And we took all three of the data sets that we got under our requests and combined them together looking for fields that could be um, that are similar and created a searchable tool called HIPAA Helper that enables folks to look up uh, a health provider and see the number of deficiencies. And in the case in which we do have um, text relating to what happened, we include that as well. Our intention is to continue filing requests under both FOIA and state public records law to gather up-to-date information and to keep that site updated hopefully at least once a year. Um, but remember, when we first put in our request to uh, OCR for data on complaints under um, <clears throat> under HIPAA, it took them many, many months to get back to us, and the data was had a lag time. We have a we have a new FOIA in for more recent information, but it takes a really long time for them to get back to you, and there's a data lag, and we we receive the data. I mean, this is sort of uh, a complaint that only a news organization would have, but. We received data that clearly was collected electronically and it was provided to us in a PDF that we had to then perform optical character recognition on in order to turn it back to um, electronic text. Uh, that was a little bit silly and we noted that to them and, and they said that's how they had to provide it. Is there an answer here that they should be putting this data online automatically? Uh, we know that there is the wall of shame where the, the big breaches have to go. Why shouldn't this be going on online with very little lag and officially, we see a lot more movement towards consumer information now in the quality safety space with compare sites and so, so on and so forth that HHS runs. Why not just let the data free? I ask the very same question all the time. Well, that might be something to put onto the agenda of the next uh, data palooza. I know that there's a lot of folks in Washington that are uh, very committed to open data. And I was just reading some of uh, Beth Novick's and Susan Crawford's work in this area, which I think is increasingly influential and hopefully will uh, influence uh, this area. Um, I had one other theme that I wanted to draw out for uh, listeners that uh, looking over the articles, which is you have a great piece, which uh, the title discusses how the health privacy law has lagged behind new technology. It looks at things like um, uh, 23andMe or uh, some of these new uh, fitness apps that um, actually Nick and our uh, former guest, Lindsay Wiley, just published on. Um, and it tells a very grim story about a lack of privacy protections in much of the new tech. But then you can all, you also complement that with this extraordinary story about the New Jersey psychological practice, which essentially put down patients' uh, conditions, mental health conditions, in the paperwork it was filing to collect debts. And extraordinarily enough, seem to get out from under HIPAA by saying that, oh, we just put everything on paper, so HIPAA doesn't apply to us. Um, and, and I thought if you could just describe this um, Short Hills Associates uh, uh, case that you revealed and what some of the larger implications may be uh, from that situation, that'd be great. Sure. So, I mean, we we assume uh, that because we're providing health information, whether it's to an app or to a practice, that HIPAA covers it. But as you both well know, but I learned over the course of this year um, it's not so much the information that's provided that matters 
Uh, it matters sort of whether the provider transmits uh, health information under certain provisions that uh, would then make it a covered entity under HIPAA or if they're a business associate of those entities. But if they are not, um, the laws of HIPAA do not apply and the rules of HIPAA do not apply. And so in the case of Short Hills Associates, apparently they believed that they were covered by HIPAA. If you go to their website, there are HIPAA forms for patients to sign. Um but when a complaint came into OCR saying that this information was being really just included in these lawsuit records and not just, you know, patients' addresses uh, and their diagnosis codes and their um, the treatment codes of what procedures they were receiving and the dates they received those procedures, but also included the names of minor children and their diagnoses uh, and their procedures that they were receiving. And so um, a complaint was made to OCR about this, and OCR responded that they were not a covered entity. And when I followed up, it was because they did not submit uh, insurance claims electronically. So the amazing thing about this is even the practice itself was telling patients of their rights under HIPAA. But when push came to shove, HIPAA didn't, uh, didn't play a role here. And the same thing I think is true in the case of these apps. And uh, I feature a story of a woman who had a paternity test, uh, purchased an at-home paternity test at Walgreens, submitted it to the company. And when she logged online to get the results, she discovered that not only were her results there, but also the results of 6,000 other people, including their names and their relatives' names and whether or not they were related to these purported relatives. Um, when she filed a complaint with OCR, again, she was informed that this was not a covered entity, and they said that if she wanted to, she could pursue it with the FTC, um, and she just gave up at that point. But we just assume that the most sensitive of information, whether we enter it online, whether we give it to a psychiatry practice or a psychology practice, is covered, is protected, and it's just not. My great uh, fear uh, going down uh, that road is that with the increasing amount of medical data being generated outside of traditional healthcare and therefore being regulated at most by some common law theories and some work from the FTC, that there's going to be a general um, sort of deprecation of health privacy. Um, that will then have a sort of a, a backing in effect on traditional healthcare. That with the increase in sort of unregulated uh, health data and nothing much happening about it, um, that's still going to push further this idea that privacy isn't that important. And I, I wondered, um, you know, as, as we put our energies uh, into this, uh, whether in fact it's the what I call the HIPAA free zone that that deserves the scrutiny, even though we see flaws in the, the traditional HIPAA-protected zone. Well, I think what's amazing here is that HITECH, passed in 2009, called on HHS to work with the FTC and submit recommendations to Congress within one year, so that would be 2010, on how to deal with entities that were handling health information that falls outside of HIPAA. We are now in 2016, and those recommendations have not been issued. There are similarly other provisions within HITECH that call for patients, for example, to have a right to access who's looked at their medical records. Those provisions have not been enforced. It's not a matter that there hasn't been thought to these issues. Um, the regulators that are charged with them have, have not followed up under the clear directions of, of Congress to put in place regulations giving people uh, rights to their private information. And uh, I think these are questions we've raised in our reporting, but um, to your point, 
point, the HIPAA free zone, um, Congress saw this as an issue, uh, you know, going on seven years ago now. Uh, why has a report not been issued about what should be done about it? I want to say I'm so glad that you mentioned the accounting for disclosures uh, that was part of high tech, because if there is any aspect of that law that to me has generated the most puzzling uh, and vehement denunciations from many people in the EHR space or health provider space, it is that accounting for disclosures uh, part of it. And, you know, you get, uh, there was just a slew of comments saying how impractical it would be, what a big burden this would be, et cetera. Um, but they were all premised on the idea that, say, or they seem to assume a situation where people would be demanding, say, a paper record of all those who had touched their medical record. Um, it seems as though, you know, when you, when we think about predictive analytics in healthcare, there's always this assumption that there's going to be incredibly smart programmers and others processing the data and designers making it more usable, but that somehow when it came to finding out who had looked at your medical record, that this would be, uh, stuck in the Stone Age. And so I really do think that, uh, do you think there's any traction in the future, potentially, to get some movement here, or at least to get some effort by, say, a joint governmental technology private sector group to recommend best practices in the way that, say, FTC has recommended best practices for mobile app developers to say to EHR vendors, look, here's a basic functionality that the law requires you to have, and it needs to be in future versions of software. Well, so the maddening thing right now is that there's a great game of finger pointing that's going on, right? So OCR says this is because there aren't standards that are promulgated by ONC, and there's no rules of the road for um, the manufacturers of electronic health record systems. Um, and everybody sort of points at each other, and so nobody does it. And, and to some extent, this is a failure of political willpower, right? If OCR said this will happen, and you're going to make it happen, and if in order for you, hospital, not to be fined and cited for failing to do it, you're going to need to put pressure on your EHR vendor. And if every hospital puts pressure on Epic or Cerner and says, we're going to start to be fined, you need to change this now, it's going to be changed. Um, things are not made retroactive. You can't make somebody give a record maybe from the past, but certainly going forward uh, and giving with a time allowed for to put the changes in place. The problem is nobody's willing to start that clock. Everybody keeps pointing it at somebody else. You have to start the clock somewhere. And it seems for now, everybody's simply given up on this, that... Um, not the advocates, but um, the government has. You don't. You don't even see this on the time horizon for um, anything that they want to do. Their their one regulation for 2016 is to think a bit more about how to split up recovery with people who were impacted by a privacy violation. That's that's what's on the regulatory calendar, not the accounting for disclosures. And finally, Charlie, let me ask you a little bit about uh, what you think the the mood on the hill is for. The last couple of decades, the traditional or the accepted meme has been that health privacy is respected on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, there are uh, well-known sort of protectors of health privacy. Uh, uh, Senator Markey comes to mind and some others. But I'm not so sure that the current political climate is as bipartisan and as protective of health privacy. 
as perhaps it used to be. Whether some of this is due to the national security issues that have come down, um, you know, there is there is surveillance going on by both private and public parties. And if you touch one, then maybe you'll have to touch the other. And just a general feeling that uh, certainly in some of the debates, I'm I, thinking particularly um, the um, the Murphy bill uh, involving um, uh, substance records and so on, where the privacy there looks like it's going to be deprecated. I just wondered whether you have a, had a sense of, of what the political climate for health privacy is like at the moment. Well, there has been a bipartisan letter in the Senate to um, OCR and to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services regarding the large-scale privacy breaches and what the agencies were doing about those. And the agencies just very recently wrote back, and it was a lot of boilerplate language. Um, but you haven't seen any effort to um, hold hearings or otherwise look into this issue. I think... Um, to a certain extent, we're still dealing with fatigue of healthcare issues after the passage of Obamacare and the effort to repeal it. And um, right now, drug costs are certainly sucking a lot of air out of the health discussions. But I think you're right. You know, as far as privacy goes, it's not something that we're hearing a ton about. Uh, the Murphy bill, as you note, would um, in certain ways uh, affect health privacy in ways that would sort of deprecate it, but in exchange for other things. I think that the recent provisions involving firearm use and reporting people who've been involuntarily committed and clarifying the rules on that, some view as degrading privacy. I, d I don't think you see a lot uh, coming out on the Hill uh, on this right now. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Charles Onstein for joining us. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Charles Onstein, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-O-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. Great fun having you with us, Charlie. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks, Frank. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank, where can you be reached this week? I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Music.